1 Corinthians chapter 7. Chapter 7 marks a transition in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. One might argue that the first six chapters are corrective in which Paul deals with issues not raised by the Corinthians, but that he has heard about in reports. Chapters 7 through 16 are also corrective, but these are on issues that the Corinthians have raised in a letter that they sent to Paul. As we've seen, 1 Corinthians is actually only one part of an ongoing correspondence between Paul, the apostle, and the church that he started in Corinth. In chapter 5, he says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. That is a previous letter, not this particular letter. In turn, the Corinthians have written a letter to Paul, who is at the current time, as he writes this, in Ephesus, probably delivered by Fortunatus, Stephanus, and Achaicus, men we will read about in chapter 16. I used to see chapters 7 through 16 as sort of this friendly exchange, that you have these new Christians in Corinth, and they have some theological questions, and so they write to Paul in Ephesus to say, Brother Paul, could you please give us some, some advice in these particular areas? But you've been with me now for these past few weeks, and you've seen that the Corinthians are really antagonistic uh, toward Paul. They have taken on a different understanding of the gospel. They have rejected Paul's authority and Paul's apostleship. So when we come to chapter 7, uh, and they begin to ask questions. They're not asking questions as much as telling Paul, this is now how we see things. And Paul answers them point by point. We notice, or we can sort of mark these off, because we find this expression, now about, in Greek, day, now about. And if you look at verse number one of chapter seven, it says, now for the matters you wrote about. And then if you look at verse number 25, also here in chapter 7, now about virgins. So this is another issue that they have brought up. In chapter 8, verse 1, now about food sacrificed to idols. In chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gifts. In chapter 16, now about the collection for God's people. And then finally in chapter 16, verse 12, now about our brother Apollos. So they bring up these issues and, and we can sort of mark it off by Paul begins to say, okay, you brought this up, okay, now about this, and, and now about this. I would add that there are two others that aren't marked off by this expression. One is found in chapter 11, when Paul writes about abuses of the Lord's Supper, and then in chapter 15, when he writes about the resurrection. And he does begin that section, now, brothers, I want to remind you. And so one might say that part of the marker, at least, is there. Because there is a logical progression uh, to Paul's argument, I, I would argue that the sequence is Paul's. That is, that Paul is not answering them point by point as they wrote him, but he's answering them point by point in his own choice of order. Uh, so, in chapters 5 and 6, he has dealt with issues of sexual immorality. Now, he chooses to begin by dealing with the issue of marriage here in chapter 7. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 will deal with idolatry, eating meals in pagan temples. And that may also be tied in ultimately to the issue of sexual immorality. But it's false worship. And so Paul in chapter 11 will deal with false worship, uh, gender issues. The women were, and men and women were cross-dressing. Uh, 
an interesting phenomenon in the Corinthian church. Uh, social status and worship. The rich were going ahead of the poor. And then in chapters 12 through 14, spiritual status and worship. I'm spiritual, you're not, therefore I should take the lead. And then Paul ties it all up with his amazing chapter, chapter 16, on the resurrection. But before we jump into chapter 7 here, there are certain things that need to be settled. The first thing is that we need to understand, Paul is responding to a specific letter from a specific group of people who bring up specific issues within a specific historical situation. This isn't Paul, particularly in this chapter, and this is critical for chapter 7, because Paul writes on marriage, and people think that this is Paul's final word on marriage. This is a theological treatise. This is what Paul has to say about marriage. Not at all. They have written to Paul saying, we have a different understanding of marriage, and Paul is seeking to correct that. He is dealing with a very specific situation. We can learn, and I hope that we learn a lot from what Paul has to say, But I think we need to be very, very careful how we approach this chapter. Um, One Christian historian, a church historian, has said that this is the one chapter that was to determine all Christian thought on marriage and celibacy for well over a millennium. And sadly, it was misunderstood. That is, up until, let's say, the 1100s and even beyond, uh, the Christian view of marriage was based on a warped understanding of what Paul was saying here, because people thought, oh, this is Paul saying this is the word on marriage. And actually, it's part of a dialogue. We're only hearing half of it. We don't hear their half. And if we're not careful, we will miss a lot. Okay. Secondly, while Paul talks about marriage and celibacy, there are a lot of things he doesn't talk about here. Um, We will look at it next week, the Lord willing, where Paul talks about if you have two partners, uh, husband and wife, and one of them becomes a Christian, and if the non-Christian doesn't want to live with you anymore and you divorce, Paul says that's fine. But he doesn't say what the Christian spouse that's been abandoned, what he or she is supposed to do. Uh, He tells us at the end of the chapter that widows are allowed to remarry, but only to a fellow Christian. But he doesn't say that for the rest of Christian people. And I'm assuming that's what he means, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't write about the benefits of marriage. Though I think if Paul were here today, he could preach long and hard on the benefits of marriage. He doesn't talk about having children. He does mention children in verse number 14 in passing. Um, He doesn't talk about these things because it's not part of the the dialogue that's going on. He deals with the issues that they have brought up. And I think if you don't understand that, then you will not understand uh, this chapter. And sadly enough, many people do not. Many people see Paul as, as a sort of a sour old bachelor, a misogynist, a man who hated women, uh, and, and therefore wanted everyone to be miserable. And, and so he writes this, this terrible chapter about marriage. It's actually a wonderful chapter if we will listen to what he has to say. As I said earlier, there are two distinct sections here because in verse number one, he says now about the things or the things you wrote about and in verse 25 now about virgins. And that's, that's a separate section which we will look at on the Lord willing next week. Um, they're very distinct. He doesn't talk about virgins in this chapter. 
or in this first half, he does only in the second half. There is one principle, however, that rules through the whole chapter, and it is do not seek a change in status. To the married, he says, if you are married, stay married with full conjugal rights. To the unmarried, that is to widowers and widows, stay unmarried if you can. If not, then you should remarry. To the married, when they're both believers, stay married. To those who are married, if one is a believer and one is an unbeliever, remain married. To those who are virgins, stay unmarried. To the married women and widows, it is good to remain that way. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. That's fine, but what were they saying to him? What was the Corinthian position? What had they said to provoke Paul to write this particular chapter? If we would be honest, and let's be honest, we don't know. We don't have their letter. It's like, and I'm sure you've all done this, where you're, you're in the room with somebody and they're on the phone and you're trying to guess who they're talking to. And you can oftentimes tell by either what, what they say or a tone of voice. And then you try to guess what the other person has said because you're only hearing this side of the conversation. That, in many ways, is what we're reduced to. We're trying to guess as to what the Corinthians said to Paul in their letter. However, all is not lost. Because we do have hints in the text that sort of give us insight, or I don't know if insight's the right word, it allows us to reconstruct what it was that Corinthians said to him. On the one hand, we have the opening statement here in verse number one of chapter seven. It is a Corinthian slogan, it is their statement, not Paul's. It says, It is good for a man not to marry. If you look at the NIV footnote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. King James, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So it seems like a, the Corinthians are saying, no touch, no sex, no marriage. Well, we just finished chapters 5 and 6. And in chapter 5, we have a man who is sleeping with his stepmother. And the church is thrilled with this. They're proud about it. They're boasting about it. Hey. We've got a guy in our church, he's sleeping with his stepmom. Isn't that great? Chapter 6, you have men in the church who are going to prostitutes. And apparently it's not a problem. So on the one hand, we have this no sex. And on the other hand, we have sex. You know, where, where people are engaging in things that are really inappropriate and are wrong. We saw last week that those who are going to prostitutes have really misunderstood two basic concepts. Freedom, I'm a Christian, I'm free, I can do anything I want. The other is the body. doesn't matter what you do with the body because God's going to destroy the body anyway. They've misunderstood this. So we have what seems to be competing factions of those who are ascetic in their view and those who are libertines, those who think that they can do whatever they want. So what is the Corinthian position? Well, much has been written about this, and there are many different opinions as to what the Corinthians thought. I don't claim to know any more than anyone else or to have any special insight, but two things do seem apparent to me. First of all, the Corinthians were not consistent in their views. Now, either you have a variety of opinions in the congregation, which is a real possibility. Remember, Paul talks about the divisions. I belong to Apollos, I belong to Paul, I belong to Cephas. 
So it could be that part of the congregation was saying sex is bad, it's dirty, it's evil. And you have another part of the congregation says sex is wonderful and you can do it with whomever you want. It doesn't matter. That is a real possibility. Or they could be far more like us than we would care to admit. And that is they were saying one thing but doing something else. You know, saying, well, we believe this. But then once they were outside the congregation doing whatever they wanted. The church in Corinth was marked by strident individualism. These people thought that they could do what they want. Each individual had the right to do as he or she saw fit. He or she saw fit. Uh, I don't think they were consistent. Secondly, I think it is apparent throughout the book that their view of Christianity had taken some Christian thought and, and sort of twisted it a bit and then had mixed in some of their own beliefs from their culture. So they had heard some things from Paul, and some of it was misheard or twisted, and then they mixed in things that they would hear every day in the marketplace, the culture around them. This, I think, becomes really apparent as we go through the second half of 1 Corinthians. There's something else that may not seem so apparent, at least not until we get to chapter 15. And that is that the Corinthians have a real problem with the resurrection. They just cannot get their minds around the concept of the resurrection. Resurrection is a very Jewish concept. The Corinthians, there were some Jews in the congregation, but Corinth is in Greece, the province of Achaia. They're Greeks. The Greeks didn't believe in resurrection. So they could not, I mean, Paul said, resurrection, Jesus was raised from the dead. That's great. But he said, now you will also be resurrected, and they just could not comprehend that. So that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, very easy. The culture denied resurrection. So Paul will say, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Which on the face of it is a rather strange remark to make. I'm convinced this is what was happening. This is what had happened to the Corinthians. They could not accept the resurrection as Paul taught it. So they believed that the resurrection had already happened. That when they became Christians, they were born again. Therefore, they are resurrected. This is new life. And for them, the Christian life is resurrection life. And Jesus said that after the resurrection will be like the angels. There will be no male or female, apparently. We will not be married or given in marriage. The male or female thing is not so clear. But there certainly will not be marriage. And the Corinthians seem to be living in that way. That is, they have rejected gender roles. They have, some of them at least, have rejected the idea of sexuality. And they really seem obsessed with angels. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you go through 1 Corinthians, Paul talks more about angels, just sort of slips it in every once in a while, more than any other of his epistles. Let me just give you the list here. In chapter 4, he talks about how that the Corinthians are at the front of the parade and the apostles are at the end of the procession. Do you remember that? And he says, We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. To angels as well as men. Why mention angels? In chapter 6, which we looked at last week in writing about going to the ungodly for judgment, 
Do you not know that we will judge angels? He doesn't explain it, he just says it. And then in chapter 11, when he gets into the issue of women wearing something on their head when they come to worship. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. I have no idea what that means. He just throws it in there. And then perhaps the reference you are most familiar with, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. Well, wait a minute. If you're living like the angels, shouldn't you speak like the angels? For them, speaking in tongues was speaking the, ang- the language of angels because they thought the resurrection had already happened. And this is what leads just to a whole host of problems. And from now to the end of 1 Corinthians, we will see these problems and Paul will deal with them. Okay? Today, we will begin with verse number 1 and work our way through verse number 11 as Paul writes to those who are married and those who were once married, those who are widowed or widowers. Let's read verses 1 through 7. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to touch a woman or not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. The first verse is critical to this whole chapter. Who is talking here? I'm convinced it is not Paul. It is the Corinthians. Paul says, okay, the things you wrote me about, let me see, you started out, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And by the way, what they're talking about here is not celibacy. What they're talking about here is what we would call asceticism or sexual asceticism. That is, they don't merely talk about that you need to be celibate, but they see it as something that is wrong and something that you need to put away and to live a life of sexual asceticism. This is the Corinthians writing to Paul. Not all are convinced of this, but I think if, as we go through this chapter, you will, you will come to see that uh, Paul holds to what we find in Scripture. That when God created Adam and Eve, he created Adam, and then he said it is not good for the man to be alone. And the point is not merely the presence of Eve, but also the union of husband and wife. And that is why when Adam sees Eve for the first time, he breaks out into song and says, this is now flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. And then we read in scripture, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. A passage, by the way, that Jesus quoted when he was asked about marriage and divorce. A passage which Paul just quoted in chapter 6, verse number 18. For it is said, the two will become one flesh. This is how God made us. This is not the result of sin. This is not the result of the fall. Sexual union between a husband and wife, this is what God created us for. 
It's not sin. It's not sinful. Okay. It can be if it is misused, but as God created, it is not. Within Christian marriage, it is the most intimate celebration of life and life together in Christ. So, let's establish verse number one. This is the Corinthian speaking. That's one problem we've dealt with. Okay, verse number two. What is Paul saying here? But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should uh, her own husband. Some people see it that Paul is saying as much as yes. Um, you know what? It is, it's better for people not... It's, it, celibacy or asceticism, sexual asceticism is actually better, verse 1. But you know what? There's so much temptation out there... You might as well get married so you don't fall into sin. Um, No, this is not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is they have embraced this position. It's better for husbands and wives not to have sexual relations. And you know what has happened as a result? People have gone outside their marriage to find sexual contentment and satisfaction, and therefore there has been much sexual immorality. It is because of this idea they've come up with that there should not be any sexual contact, that it has forced people to find it somewhere else. And as a result, there is so much immorality. Paul's view is this. Every married man is to have ongoing sexual relations with his wife, and every married woman is to have ongoing sexual relations with her own husband. And Paul, I think, makes two things clear in verses 3, 4, and 5. Sexual relations, number one, sexual relations are a duty within marriage, and he's not saying this because of the sexual immorality, but because of their motto. Their motto is like, this is not good, this is not good. And Paul's like, it is a duty. And secondly, because your body doesn't belong to you alone, it belongs to your spouse. Marital duty, it is the payment that is due. It implies, perhaps stronger than implies, that married couples are indebted to each other sexually. Well, such a view would be offensive to the ascetic who says, no, 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 you need to say no to such things. It's also offensive to the liberated person who does not want to have any sense of obligation. I can do whatever I want or not do whatever I want. Paul's like, no, it is a duty. I think this is particularly offensive to the romantic who would say, wait, you're, you're talking about sexual relations and marriage as obligation and duty? Doesn't that, that ruins it. That, that takes all the spark and the spice out of it. Paul says it is a duty. The biblical view is that both husband and wife have obligations in marriage. There's a mutuality of obligation as well as submission. And the mutuality is seen in the fact that the wife's body belongs to her husband. I think the men would say, yeah, that's great. But then Paul turns around and says, listen, the husband's uh, body belongs to his wife. You know, contrary to what we oftentimes imagine, that, that sex is the man's privilege and the wife's obligation. 
Paul says it is a duty that both are to fulfill to one another. So Paul says, do not deprive each other. It's written in the imperative, stop depriving one another. It's interesting the way that it's translated because the word that Paul uses is actually the word defraud, what we found in chapter 6 about going to court. Don't cheat one another. But as Paul does in this chapter, and I think people fail to see this, and it's, it's so tragic, he does make concessions. There is an out. Okay? That is, he says, it is possible if both partners agree, it's mutual consent, that for a period of time in their marriage, they will not have sexual relations. They, they, they meet together, the husband and wife, and they say, for this period of time, a week, a month, whatever, they say, we will not have sexual relations. And the reason that we won't is so that we can spend time in prayer. Now, Paul is not saying that praying is better or higher or holier than having sexual relations. Not at all. What he's talking about is what we might call sexual fasting. Usually we think of fasting with regard to food. And again, oftentimes when we think of fasting, we think of it in a very ascetic way. I'm really hungry, but I'm not going to eat. I'm going to fast and deprive myself. No. Biblically, fasting is the time you would have spent eating, you spend that time praying. So let's say if you have a regular schedule from 12 to 12.30 or from 12 to 1 every day, you have lunch, you would say, okay, today I'm going to fast at lunch. And from 12 to 1, instead of eating, I'm going to pray. In the same way, Paul is saying that a husband and wife may covenant together that for this period of time, we are not going to come together, but we will spend the time in prayer. That is, we're not, we're not saying, no, we're going to deprive ourselves. No. Instead of doing this, we are going to spend the time in prayer. But he's also very, you know... You need to be careful, Paul says, that if you say that it is for too long a period of time, you may in fact deprive, well, in depriving each other, you may open the door for temptation. How long is a couple allowed to stay apart so they can spend the time in prayer? Again, I think it would depend on the couple, but I would argue not very long. Otherwise, temptation might come in. Before Guy and I got married, we went to various couples in the church and asked for their advice and for their counsel, uh, what wisdom they could share with us. And the one thing I remember through all of that is something that Dan Novley, one of our elders here, told us. He told us every marriage is different. Very wise counsel. I'm not a marriage counselor, but when people ever ask me for advice, that's what I tell them. Every marriage is different. And how true it is. So Paul doesn't say, okay, you guys can stay apart for a week or two weeks or three. He does not give a time period because every marriage relationship is different. And the husband and the wife, they know their marriage, or they should, and they should know how long they can stay apart so they can spend the time in prayer. Verse number six. How does it tie in? I say this, uh, Paul says, by way of concession, not as a command. Now, 
is he, is he talking about what he just said or what he's about to say? It's what he's just said. Paul has said, you can stay apart for prayer. You don't have to. Because now people might say, oh my goodness. Paul's saying that we need to spend time apart and spend the time in prayer. Paul's saying, not at all. I'm not telling you this. I'm giving this as a concession. If you choose to do that, you may do so. In the same way, fasting is not commanded in Scripture. But if you choose to fast, you may do that. In the same way, if a married couple chooses to stay apart, they may do that as well. Verse number 7 closes this particular section. And it raises many questions for people because now it becomes clear that Paul is unmarried. And he says, I wish that all men were as I am. But each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Wait a minute, Paul, we're talking about sexual relations and all of a sudden you sort of throw in this, this, this piece of information that you're a celibate person. Why bring it up now? Because they're thinking it. I'm convinced that those in the church who had embraced asceticism, they're like, well, Paul doesn't have sex. Paul's single. He's celibate. If it's good enough for Paul, that must be the way the rest of us are supposed to live. And Paul's like, no. You know, I wish you could be like me, but you can't. Because God has given me a gift, and he's given you a gift. And the gifts are not always the same. Paul's singleness, his ability to live without a wife, was not against his will. This was something that God gave him. It was a gift of freedom from desire, a gift of freedom from the need of sexual fulfillment. It made it possible for Paul to live a contented life without marriage. It was a gift from God. I don't know if you've met people like this. I have. And they're very clear that it is a gift from God. They're very aware of that. That God has made them the way that they are. That they have, they don't feel the need uh, for sexual fulfillment or even for companionship. But Paul's condition was what he calls a charisma. A gift of grace from God. It is not a gift to all believers. And so in the church we have some who have the gift to be single, not ascetic, not monks and nuns, but to be single, to be celibate. And to others God has given the gift of marriage. Okay? Now let's move on. Verses 8 and 9. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Some of you perhaps a familiar passage. It may seem strange that Paul would deal with widows here and widowers. And I would just say that the word unmarried there in Greek, agamas, without marriage, uh, is not referring to the unmarried. It is referring to widow, uh, widowers, those who were married and no longer are, just as widows were once married and they no longer are. This passage seems to present difficulties because Paul seems to say, hey, you know what, if you're burning with passion, you might as well get married. Um, If you can't control yourself, you might as well get married. 
I don't think that's what Paul is saying exactly. It ties in with what he's just said about the gift of being alone. You have a couple, happily married. They have ongoing sexual relations, a wonderful marriage, and then one partner is taken away. Now you have a person who is without marriage, but who is used to living as a married person. This person, just because suddenly they are widowed or widow, become a widower, they don't automatically have the gift of being alone, like Paul did. No. And so for those who are used to living a married lifestyle, the change is so abrupt, Paul says, maybe you should just go ahead and get married. And in fact, the language here, it says, if they cannot control themselves, is actually too strong. Um, it is more if they are not controlling themselves, if they do not control themselves. These, in fact, may be the men in chapter 6 who are going to prostitutes. Their wives had died. Suddenly they're without sexual fulfillment because their wife is gone. They don't have the gift of celibacy. They need to find fulfillment. They have people in the church saying, it's better not to get married. And so they've been running to prostitutes. What does Paul mean when he says it's better to, mar- uh, better to marry than to burn? And the NIV is added to burn with passion, which I think is really reading into the text. I don't think it's what Paul is saying. He's talking about the judgment, what he's mentioned in chapter 3, the fire of judgment. And Paul is not saying, listen, you know, if you're a young man, a young woman, and your hormones are raging, it's better to marry than to burn. That's not what he's saying at all. Paul understands. And, and here we have sort of a hint that maybe Paul himself was a widower. That Paul understands what it's like to be living with someone for years and years and years. And suddenly that person be gone and there's, there's a void in your life. And you may in fact need to fill that void. Not everyone does. Some people have the gift that they don't need to. Others do. And Paul says, listen... I would prefer that you be like me, but I have a gift. And if you don't have the gift, then get married. By all means, you should get married. It is a wonderful gift from God. And then lastly, we'll close with verses 10 and 11. Paul goes back to the married. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Paul again comes back to the married Christians. And again, it's a very specific situation here. And we're trying to imagine what their side of the conversation was, but this is how I imagine it was. You have certain women in the church who suddenly woke up one day and said, I have the gift of celibacy. Well, you know, that's not... Great news for their husband. Okay? And so they've separated themselves from their husband, and he's left on his own. And again, this may have led to the events of chapter 6. Paul says, listen, this is not right. A wife must not separate from her husband because she thinks she has a gift to be celibate, and, and he doesn't. But, let's say that she does, 
fine. She may separate from her husband. But, you know, she has two choices. Either she can reconcile to her husband or she can remain alone. She cannot marry somebody else. So, and I'm convinced we'll come to it as we go along. The problem in the Corinthian church, we have a bunch of women that are causing problems. And they see themselves as spiritual and saying to their husbands, listen, I'm more spiritual than you are and I don't need that anymore. So I'm going to separate myself from you. And Paul's like, okay, but don't wake up one day and say, okay, now I'm going to marry somebody else. That's not allowed. If you wish to separate, there's no church discipline. If you wish to remarry, there will absolutely be church discipline because of what you have done. And he says to the husbands, you must not divorce your wife. Well, this was much more common in the ancient world. In the ancient world, we don't have wives divorcing their husbands. We have them separating themselves, going home to live with mom. Husbands, we have legally divorcing their wives so that they can remarry. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. Now, there is in parenthesis, uh, Paul says, not I, but the Lord. And we've talked about this already. Uh, When Jesus has spoken about something, Paul quotes him, or Paul will say, this is what the Lord said. This is what Jesus said. And Jesus had, in fact, spoken about divorce. But Jesus spoke to Jews who knew the Old Testament, who knew the law. Paul speaking to Gentiles, to pagans. They don't know the law. And so he has to deal with a whole slew of issues that Jesus never had to touch on. So we will see. If you look at verse number 12, which is where we'll begin next week, to the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. Paul's not saying, oh, this is just my opinion. Jesus didn't actually say this. This is my opinion. No, he's saying, I'm talking about this. Jesus never did because Jesus never faced these situations. But Paul speaks with authority as one who is trustworthy, someone who has the spirit of God. We will see that later on. So Paul says, stay as you are. To those who are married, you stay married. It is a duty. You have obligations. Fulfill those. If you've lost your spouse, if you're a widower or a widow, and you can remain alone and single, then do so. If you cannot, then you should marry. To those who are married, don't separate. Don't divorce. You should stay together. We'll come back to this, the Lord willing, next week. But just some points for you to think about and to to meditate on as we go through this week and then come back together next week. Paul is not a romantic about marriage, but neither is he an ascetic. Marriage is a gift from God. A gift not for all, but it is a gift nonetheless. Marriage has become so common in human history that we forget how special it really is. What a wonderful gift it is from God. I think Paul wants to make it very clear that marriage is a gift. But if you look at the whole concept of God's gifts in the Bible, gifts always bring with them responsibilities. 
gifts bring with them duties, things that we are supposed to do. And when I, when I say this, I always think of the story of Peter's mother-in-law. I think it's recorded in three of the four Gospels that uh, Jesus is preaching and he comes to Capernaum, which is where Peter lived, and he goes into Peter's house. And Peter's mother-in-law, apparently living with them, has a fever. And so Jesus goes over, he touches her and heals her, and immediately she gets up and she begins to serve everybody. That is the healing, a wonderful gift from Jesus, brought with it responsibility. She didn't go around saying, look at me, I'm healed. She didn't write a book, you know, how Jesus healed me. She got up and went to work. Gifts bring with them obligations and responsibilities. Marriage is a wonderful gift from God. It has with it not only privileges, but obligations. And then lastly, and I think Paul would say this, and I mean, I think he has in so many ways, not everybody's the same. Not everybody's the same. Not everybody has the same temperament, the same gifts from God. Not every marriage is the same. But as we embrace the gifts that God has given us, we are to live in obedience to his commands. The Lord willing, we'll pick this up next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, our Creator, you made us. You made us as we are. We are not to be alone. You created male and female. You created marriage and sexual union. These are wonderful gifts from you. And we give thanks for them. But we know that these are gifts that you've not given to everyone. We also acknowledge that with these wonderful gifts come obligations and duties. That on some days seem such light duties. And on others, may not, maybe not so light. But if we are to live lives in obedience to your commands, we are to understand that we can't live as we choose. We don't have the freedom to do what we want. In marriage, we are to submit to each other. Father, we live in a world in which this sounds so strange. May we in the days to come as we think these through, come to see the truth of it and how it stands in complete contrast oftentimes to what we find in our culture. May we not be guilty as the Corinthians were of somehow lowering the standard of the bar and allowing the culture to influence the truth of your word. I thank you for this time we could spend together in worship. Ask that your grace and spirit would go with us as we leave this place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing the doxology together?
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.